Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. On today's episode, we are going to speak with Sarah Hurwitz. Sarah Hurwitz shows us the complexity of the modern Jewish experience. She really does it all. Sarah began as a speechwriter for some of the most important politicians in the United States, both Michelle and Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry. Yeah, she's a pretty impressive woman. And when she was in the political arena earlier in her life, being Jewish wasn't a big piece of her experience. If being best friends with the first lady isn't wild enough, where her story becomes even more unique is in what she chose to do next, write a book on rediscovering a connection to Judaism. I am so excited to have this conversation with Sarah Hurwitz because unconventional as her career path may have been, her experience seems pretty relatable for a lot of young Jews today. Our connection to our Judaism is constantly changing and it often feels like we need to pick between our professional life and our Jewish life. Sarah Hurwitz totally rejects this binary and that's what I wanna ask her about. How do you go from the White House to shul? More than that even, why does that surprise us? Why do we think you can't do both? Why are we so shocked by this sort of representation? I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Sarah Hurwitz was chief speechwriter for Hillary Clinton during her 2008 presidential campaign. Then she joined the Obama campaign, serving as the senior speechwriter for the then Senator Obama and helping Michelle Obama draft her 2008 Democratic National Convention speech. Prior to the Clinton and Obama campaigns, Sarah served as deputy chief speechwriter for Senator John Kerry's 2014 presidential campaign, deputy speechwriter for General Wesley Clark's presidential campaign, and speechwriter for Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa. Sarah was also a lawyer at the Washington, D.C. office of Wilmer Hale. Sarah is the author of Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and the Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there. Michelle Obama tweeted about Sarah Horowitz's book saying, Sarah Horowitz is a brilliant writer with a big heart and a kind soul, and I'm sure here all along will reflect her thoughtfulness and eloquence, which I depended on for so many years. I'm so proud of you, Sarah, for sharing your journey and your voice with the world. Sarah Horowitz, it's such an honor to have you here today. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to have this conversation, and I'm ready to get right into it. So starting off, yeah, let's do it. Um, I want to hear a bit about what your experience was like growing up as a Jewish woman. Um, Where are you from? What kind of Jewish tradition were you raised in? Yeah, let's get into all of that. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a in a suburb of Boston. And, you know, my parents, I think they really, you know, they wanted to give us a sense of Jewish identity. So they did join the local synagogue in our town. We went to Hebrew school. We sort of half-heartedly showed up for the High Holy Days a couple times yeah, a year. Yeah. We were we were High Holy Day Jews at best, I think. And that's what know, we called ourselves too. Growing up, right? like you know, once I became a bat mitzvah, I was like, you know, that's enough, right? I kind of thought, you know, sure, I'm a cultural Jew, I'm a Jew by heritage, but you know, if I want meaning or spirituality or connection, I have to look elsewhere. You know, I didn't really see much during those two services each year that led me to think that Judaism had something powerful to offer me. So I just mm-hmm. kind of stepped away from it. And how has that changed now? Is that, I, I mean, obviously, uh, I'm sure it's changed a lot because you wrote a whole book about it. But where do you <laughs> kind of see that shift happening? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it actually happened about 25 years later when at mm-hmm. the age of 36, I broke up with a guy I was dating. I had a lot of time on my hands. I was kind of lonely. And 
anxious and I happened to hear about an intro to Judaism class at the JCC here in Washington, D.C., where I live. And I really, I signed up just on a whim, but I was incredibly moved by what we learned in that class. You know, it was 4,000 years of crowdsourced wisdom from millions of people about what it means to be human, like how to be a good person, how to lead a worthy life, how to find deep spiritual connection. And I kept thinking to myself, like, I didn't see any of this in those two services every year. If you're a Jew whose only point of connection are two four-hour long services that are you know, a lot in Hebrew, a lot of stand-up, sit-down, very repetitive, you're not necessarily going to walk away thinking like, oh, man, Judaism, this is where it's at. But as finally as an adult coming back to Judaism and actually seeing, you know, getting a sense of the entirety of this tradition, I, I just couldn't believe it. And so I decided that I wanted to start learning. And so I took more classes, read more books, and really kind of went on this this journey. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And I find that story very, very relatable. Um, I also, my family called ourselves high holiday Jews growing up um, until my bat mitzvah go when I had to. And then I kind of stopped. And in the past couple of years taking classes, I'm an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, oh. just finished my second year of college. Good <laughs> for taking, you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, finishing like and taking um, Jewish studies minor, political science major and taking Jewish studies classes has been super eye-opening because there is this wealth of tradition, this wealth of knowledge that has really been preserved because people have taken the time to preserve it and yes. learning about that makes you feel like you're a part of something so special oh my because i i love i love how you state that because there is the sense that over thousands of years people have worked very hard to add to and preserve this tradition to hand it down for us so there's mm-hmm. something you know when i look back at myself in my 20s and early 30s like there's something almost like a little disrespectful you know it's almost like having this like priceless family heirloom that's been handed down for thousands of years and just sticking it in a box in your closet and then putting like your tennis shoes on top of it, right? Like, it's like, wait a second, that was really valuable. And I'm kind of, I feel a little bit of heartbreak that for all those years, I was so dismissive of it. Like once you Mm -hmm. actually start digging into the tradition, you begin to appreciate how brilliant and wise and radical it is and edgy and, you know, progressive in many senses of that word. Like, I just don't think people appreciate what's there. I completely echo that. I think I was talking to my mom about this today, actually, how growing up, you know, I grew up in an area that was super, super assimilated. Long Island's an area that's super assimilated. And then kind of digging into our my history, and I think you kind of expressed the same sentiment. It gives you a new sense of purpose and a new sense of meaning yes. in your life. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. absolutely. It, it, you know, <laughs> it opens up, it really opens up another dimension to life. You know, I think you can kind of, you know, you can kind of live live along the lines of the modern secular culture of like, you do you, do what feels good, make a lot of money, be successful in whatever conventional way we understand that word. But I think Judaism opens you up to another dimension of human experience that once you get a sense of it, you realize like, wait a second, there's a deeper way to live my life. Absolutely. Um, And you talked about this idea of taking classes as opposed to when you were when you were younger. So your experience like as a student, so you, I understand you went to Harvard University, what was your experience like as a Jewish student there? Did you have a significant kind of um, like pulse on Jewish life or was that something you hadn't really connected to until later? You know, I had almost no pulse on Jewish life. I actually, yeah. I went to the Hill, like I, you know, as a freshman, I went to the Hillel the first week of class and I just felt so out of place. Like everyone, mm-hmm. I think it was a Shabbat dinner and they, people were washing their hands without soap. And I was like, what's going on here? This is a weird lack of hygiene. And you know, people knew all the prayers. They knew the rituals. Everyone seemed to have gone to Jewish summer camp together. And I remember just feeling ashamed and embarrassed and thinking like, mm-hmm. okay, 
I am just not a good enough Jew to be here. Like, I'm just going to back away slowly. And I never went back, actually, after that. Um, you know, I, I certainly had a, you know, I had a sense that I was Jewish. I think maybe a few times I kind of rolled into High Holiday Services with a friend, you know, mm-hmm. just whatever service was happening on campus. And I had you know, a lot of my friends was were Jewish. Like, you know, Harvard had a, many Jewish students who were undergrads. And I had a real sense of camaraderie and a, a sense of belonging. But you know, I certainly wouldn't say I was deeply connected to Judaism back then. Kind of on the flip side, how have things shifted since you first started to get your foot in the door? Oh, I think they've actually changed. I mean, yes, a long way to go, but I think they've changed a great deal. You know, you yeah. see young women who are members of Congress who are really outspoken, right? Whether or not you mm-hmm. agree with them, that's, you know, you can certainly debate that, but they, you know, they're outspoken and you see them speaking about what it is like to be a young woman, doing like a mm-hmm. makeup tutorial, talking about what it means to to wear professional clothes, like that's amazing. You know, I think that that is a yeah. really interesting step, especially for young women being inspired. You know, you see many, many more women running for office, especially at local and state levels now than 20 years ago. You know, I think you know you had a a woman running for president in 2016, and no one, when Hillary ran a second time, no one asked the question, "Can a woman be president?" In 2008, mm-hmm. they did. I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. But by yeah. 2016, that just wasn't the issue. And so I do think a lot of progress has been made. And I, I think we should take heart in that mm-hmm. and use that to motivate us to keep pushing. Yeah. And where do you think we go from here? I mean, obviously, we're hoping for a female president. We're hoping for this to continue happening. But how do you think we get there? What's the next step for us? I think it is women running at every level. It's more and more women running. You know, I think it is just so often like women don't put themselves forward because, you know, for so many different reasons, they bear more of the responsibility in their households. They are not encouraged necessarily. More women need to run. I just could not yeah. be more enthusiastic about encouraging women who are passionate, who are interested, who have that excitement. I really encourage them to run. And by the way, if you don't want to run, that's totally great. I don't either, but go work in <laughs> politics, right? Support yeah. amazing women who are running. If you have money, donate it. If you have time, volunteer for them. Like support these extraordinary women. You know, it reminds me a lot. I had a class winter quarter. It's it's awesome because it's not competitive. It's just supportive. We're always like, I want to help you with your with studying. It's always kind of camaraderie. But we we noticed something in this class. We noticed that whenever people raised their hands to speak, it was this pretty big lecture. The men would raise their hand no matter what they had to say. If it was a good idea, a bad idea, a good question, a bad question, they'd ask it. The women were so careful, and I found myself being so careful, afraid that if I said something wrong, people would judge me. And we decided to try to like flip that gender dynamic. We're like, we're just going to ask every question that comes to our mind. We're going to just like speak as much as the men do. And it was super uncomfortable at first, but it kind of like gave us a challenge to like overcome our own, I think, internalized sense of sexism that we couldn't speak unless we had something like really, really brilliant to say. And I think that the more that we start to shake up that dynamic, the more we can just in small ways challenge outside of this quo. I think that is so smart, right? It's like it's the willingness to kind of leave behind the perfectionism, which so many of us, including me, have, right? It's like it has mm-hmm. to be everything has to be 100%. I can't risk not getting that A+. And actually you can, right? You can yeah. Actually you can because <laughs> – who knows? Maybe actually what you have to say is quite brilliant and you're undervaluing yourself. And just, mm. you know, to kind of take that risk, to put yourself out there and to have your voice heard, that's really important. That doesn't mean you say every random crazy thing. I'm sure that's not yeah. what you guys were doing. <laughs> what you guys were probably doing was instead of like the A plus thought, you were sharing the A thought. It's like, ooh, crazy, right? You're taking that risk. <laughs> but that's really, it's important. I think that's a great 
It's a great approach. Absolutely. There are lots of ways to get into politics. And your way of getting into politics is super cool because you were a speechwriter for some really important people. How did you find that? How did that become something that you were involved with? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I My dad had actually been a speechwriter for a, a candidate for Congress, you know, decades ago, back after we graduated from law school. So I knew what a speechwriter was. And in the summer of 1998, I interned in Vice President Gore's Al Gore's speechwriting office. But the funny thing is, is I'd actually been assigned to the scheduling and advance office, which was, you know, the most important office in the White House, right? That they are the people who run everything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just, I had this funny intern whose name was Len, who wanted to tell me stories about his sex life. This was way before me, too. <laughs> so I was like, okay, oh I goodness. guess this is how workplaces work. All right. And I just didn't really enjoy the work. And so I no. happened to crash a party of the vice president's staff. It was a goodbye party for one of his staffers who was leaving. And I met a guy who'd grown up in the town next to me. And it turned out he was one of Vice President Gore's speechwriters. And I was like, oh, gosh, please let me come work for you. And he said, like, okay. So I convinced the scheduling and advance office to let me switch over and work for the the vice president's speechwriting office. And that's where I really got my start because I saw what these speechwriters were doing. And it was so inspiring to me. They were crafting the words that were designed to inspire people, to empower people, to reassure people, to – you know, really articulate deep truths and to give people hope and optimism. And I just was really moved by that. And so I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And I I got a couple of speechwriting jobs after college, both of which were total disastrous failures. Um, (laughs) One was in state government, commuted three hours a day, round trip. I sat in a windowless – yeah, I sat in a windowless cubicle next to a bathroom. It was gross. And then I Mm -hmm. wrote for Senator Tom Harkin, who was a wonderful, wonderful guy – I didn't even know how to write speeches. I was 23. I don't even know why they hired me. I was 22, actually. Wow. <laughs> That's so impressive. It, well, it was well, not really because after a year, his chief of staff was like, you know, I think you should go to law school. I hear you applied. You should you should do that. So I just left and I went to law school and I happened to meet a guy named Josh Gottheimer my third week of class. He is a congressman from New Jersey now, but back then he was just a law student with me. He'd used previously written speeches for President Clinton. And we just started freelance speech writing together, and he really taught me how to write a speech. And, wow. you know, we got jobs on Wes Clark's campaign, John Kerry's campaign, then I got the Hillary job. And I'll, you know, I kind of kept moving up. So that's how it worked out. But speech writers get to speech writing in very strange ways. Sometimes yeah. people come there from policy jobs. People will come from journalism. One of my colleagues in the White House had been a math major in college. You know, lots of ways, <laughs> lots of roots in. That is that is so cool. And one thing that I was thinking of, like when I was reading your bio and learning about your work is this idea of what you had just said, the, the words you write or what we listen to and are inspired by. And so one thing that I'm wondering is how do you balance finding your voice as a writer and the voice of the politician you're writing for? How do those two things come into synergy when you're putting together a speech? So you actually don't balance them. The entire job, <laughs> is, the entire job is channeling the voice of the person you're writing for. It's really, yeah. it's really not about your own voice. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. you might have your own ideas or for yeah. for language or for themes or for stories, but you're always trying to filter them through the lens of the the speaker's voice. So you know, a lot of what I did was, you know, I spent time, a lot of time with Mrs. Obama, saying like, "What do you want to say?" And really yeah. listen carefully to what she told me because this is a woman who knows what she wants to say. And I would take detailed, like verbatim notes when she spoke on my laptop, typing as fast mm-hmm. as possible. 
because that's, and you know, I spent a time with her in meetings. I spent time with her traveling. You know, I was always trying to just be in the flow of her voice and the flow of kind of where her head was about the topic she was speaking about. So it's very much about channeling the speaker's voice. It's really not about me finding my own voice. You know, I had to kind of do that again after I left the White House. And what was your experience like working with First Lady Michelle Obama? It was extraordinary. I mean, I just I can imagine. I I feel like I feel like I was so spoiled because, you know, she is a gifted speaker and writer in her own right. She's so brilliant. She has such a natural talent at storytelling, at moving people, at connecting with people. And so I feel like I learned a lot from her. You know, she just has this like she's such high technical standards. You know, every transition had to be perfect. The structure and the flow had to be totally smooth and seamless and logical. And she would just had an ability to just focus right in on whatever was the weakest part of the speech. And she would be like, okay, you know, this part, this part is is weak, right? It's not vivid. It's not moving. Or like, you know, this part's too long. Or, you know, this part, it just doesn't feel tight. We need to tighten it up. And it was, you know, she was like always right. I think sometimes when you speech write, you give someone a draft and they make it worse, right? Their, their suggestions <laughs> are bad. And you're like, no, she always made myself better. And it was just, and she was warm and she was fun and she was brilliant. And I just, she was always had a fresh, edgy, moving way of speaking and looking at things. So it was, I feel so incredibly privileged and honored to have worked for her. And a lot of the work that you did with um, First Lady Michelle Obama was centered around um, young women and the role that they play. And and I was wondering how you connected to this experience on like a feminist level, like woman to woman coming together with one of the most powerful women in the world and writing speeches that affect other women. Yeah, I mean, she. you're right. She had a really big program that was designed to promote girls' education around the world. And I absolutely loved writing speeches for that program because you know it involved traveling around the world and meeting girls from all different countries. And, you know, if I said to you, like, okay, who is the first spouse of Ghana, Argentina, Mexico, Japan, Brazil, you know, I'll just throw out some countries, like, I don't know. I don't, I doubt you know, right? Like, no, I don't. But like, but these women, these young women and girls all around the world, yeah. like, they knew who Mrs. Obama was. They knew oh. her story. They were really inspired by her. So, you know, we would land, we would go visit a school, and these girls would be like crying and screaming and just so excited to see her. And I just can't imagine if like the first spouse of another country came to a school here, the kids would be like, yeah. who's this person? You know, we don't, we don't know. Um, so I just saw the way that she inspired these young women, both around the world and here in the U.S. And I also saw how she was constantly determined to go to places where young women would not expect to see a president or first lady. You know, she did mm-hmm. not want to go to the fanciest colleges and universities, the fanciest schools. She wanted to go to the place where, you know, the kids would never expect someone like her to show up. And that was a beautiful thing to witness. Wow. Were there any speeches in particular that you remember being the most profound ones that you worked on or were they all kind of summatively? You know, there were so many that I just feel really lucky to have been part of. I think one that sticks out you know, for me right now as we're talking about women and women's yeah. issues was a speech that she gave in October of 2016. Um, during the 2016 campaign, it was in Manchester, New Hampshire. And you know, looking back on it now, it was really a very early Me Too kind of speech where she was just had a lot to say about the incredible misogyny we were seeing in that election. You know, she was very, you know, she was angry and she had, you know, she was like, this is unacceptable. And she wanted to give a really strong speech about it. And, you know, if you go back and look at that speech, it is raw, it is searing, it is passionate. And, you know, watching her give that speech was just 
really extraordinary because it was it was in this massive gym and there's like 2,500 people there. And I was sort of worried that it would turn into a rally and people would be yelling. It was silent in that room. Like wow. she just delivered that and people were wrapped. And, you know, what was especially moving was the response that she got from it. I mean, letters poured in, emails poured in. You know, we got people saying to us, you know, I was sexually assaulted and I've been I've been struggling with shame, but I'm not going to feel ashamed. Like this was not my fault. You know, we had a lot of men writing in saying, thank you. You know, I don't talk like this. My brothers and sons and fathers, we don't talk like this about women. And thank you for saying that that's not acceptable. I don't want anyone in my family speaking like this. I don't want the women in my family to be treated like this. So that was really to see the the ripple effects of that speech. It was quite, quite powerful. That's absolutely incredible. And knowing that you were a part of putting together those words must just mean a tremendous amount to you. It was, I mean, that speech was really, you know, she had a real sense of what she wanted to say. So yeah. I, you know, I, it was fun to work on it with her, but that was, that was really from her. And what was the experience like to be a woman in the White House? You kind of talked a bit about like talking with Michelle Obama about these issues. What was it like to actually be a woman there? You know, there were so many powerful women in the Obama Mm -hmm. White House. It just felt, frankly, I didn't really think much about it. That's that's what you hope for. You know, you had all these women in the most senior positions in the White House Mm -hmm. and it just, I felt very comfortable as a woman there. And, and I felt valued. I felt respected. It was a wonderful place to work. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. have – it's rare for people to stay eight years in the White House. The typical White House tenure is like 18 months, maybe two years. And a lot of people and a lot of women in the Obama White House stayed the whole time, uh, which tells you a lot about what the Obamas are like to work for. Yeah. And I would imagine it seems like Michelle Obama was the most, I guess – moving person that you've worked with, Troy speeches with, or were they all kind of in their own way? You know, I I really, I really admire and respect everyone who I've worked for. I think, you know, for her, I had the longest experience. You know, we worked, I first worked with her on her 2008 Democratic National Convention speech. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, you know, pretty much working with her on and off from then the next couple of years and then full time for, you know, until 2017. So that was almost a decade. So I think wow. that I really have the the closest relationship and the most experience working with her. And I think that I'm probably most comfortable and at home in her voice. I think we're not, you know, people often ask me like, you know, do you have to share a similar background to the person you write with? You know, should you be from the same gender, the same religion, the same socioeconomic background? And my answer is not necessarily it's actually much more important to share a sensibility about what makes a good speech. And I feel like, you know, while we obviously have very different backgrounds and life experiences, our sensibility about what makes a good speech is totally aligned. We both agree that a good speech is about values. It's about stories. It's about reaching people where they are. You know, it is not about rattling off a bunch of policy. That's really Mm -hmm. kind of key. And I think that sensibility was was shared. Yeah. And and when it comes to the actual delivery of the speech, you talked about how in that one particular story in the gymnasium, she gave the speech in a way that was really rousing. How do you come to determine that? Because that adds a whole different dimension after the words are determined. You know, it's funny. People often ask me like, oh, did you coach her? The yeah. answer is no. She was <laughs> such a natural. I just never wanted to say anything because she just had such a natural instinct. There are speechwriters who will help, you know, who will give advice on that, but she just didn't need any of it. I think the closest I came was sometimes in speeches, I might put the word pause, you know, if there there should be a pause. Um, I often use kind of unusual punctuation, like a lot of Mm -hmm. ellipses. Instead of commas, I would have three dots just to indicate 
kind of pause this within sentences, but mm-hmm. it really, she was, she didn't need any help with that. Yeah, it's, it seems absolutely unbelievable. Um, and so after you left the White House, it seems like you reached this inflection point in your own life and your view on Judaism and you came to write this book. Um, how did that process, how did you decide to write the book? What was it inspired by and what kind of was the the thing that made you decide to write it? Yeah, so I, you know, I had a really hard time learning about Judaism as an adult. You know, there is no natural like beginning to Judaism, right? Everything in Judaism mm-hmm. is hyperlinked to everything else. So, you know, you can't really understand the holidays unless you're familiar with the Torah and you can't really you don't really get where the Torah is going unless you know the Talmud. And you can't really, yeah. it's like, it's all connected and you just kind of have to dive in and keep going a layer deeper and a layer deeper and deeper. Yeah. And I just found that there were really excellent kind of intro books that were great with the nuts and bolts, like the how-to. But when it got to the why-to, then you're getting into some pretty academic, pretty esoteric. Yeah. It's not like, these are not the most accessible books. And, you know, I, like I, I, put in the time, I put in the commitment, but it was hard. It was very hard for me to put this all together. And I found myself sometimes getting frustrated when I was reading, just saying, okay, why didn't they say it this way? Or like, oh, I see how this connects. Why didn't, why didn't they do that? I was writing all these notes in the corner of my books and kind of, I remember just talking about this with friends and they were like, you're a writer. Why don't you do this? And I remember thinking, oh, no, 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 I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a scholar very gendered, right? It's like, oh, not me. I'm not qualified. Someone else yeah, yeah. is more qualified. And I just remember one of, and, and you know, one friend was talking to me and trying to convince me. And then finally, he sent me to another friend, the wonderful Adam Grant, who is a brilliant author. He's a scholar. He's a professor at uh, Wharton and writes these amazing books. One that just came out is called Think Again, which is a brilliant mm-hmm. book about uh, changing your mind about things. It's excellent. And, you know, he said to me, he didn't even know me, but my friend sent me to him and he just said to me, you know, Sarah, I'm hearing you say you can't write this book, but what about a journalist who gets really interested in a topic they know nothing about, spends a couple of years learning deeply about it and writes a best-selling book? You're saying that's not legitimate? You're saying that's not a good book? It's like, hmm. He's like, how are you different? And that's actually what convinced me that maybe I could write it. So that's, I decided I wanted to write a book to try to really, I want to write the book that I needed when I was immersed in learning, I wanted the book that really that really kind of shares what I think are some of the most, the deepest, most transformative, most inspiring and relevant insights for our lives today. The things that will Absolutely. actually transform your life on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis instead of more theoretical things or more very basic how-to things. Yeah. And, and through the process of taking those anecdotes that you've written on the side of your book and putting them into a, a, a book now – did that shift your perspective on Judaism? Did that influence? I, I feel like putting those words down have an impact. Oh, I 100% agree with that. I mean, mm-hmm. for me, I think it really, you know, when I had to translate Judaism for others, I really had to understand it in a yeah. much deeper way, right? Like mm-hmm. you really, and this is the problem with Judaism, to make a you know, any kind of general statement about anything in Judaism you actually have to be aware of all the 8 million little nuances and details in order for that general statement to be accurate, which yeah. is just exhausting, right? There's a big yeah. difference. <laughs> like good writing requires that you sacrifice some precision, but you never sacrifice accuracy, right? There's a difference yeah. between accuracy and precision. And Judaism 
hates that. Judaism wants you to be more and more precise, get more and more down to the weeds and talk about the exception to the exception to the exception to the exception. That doesn't, it's very hard to sort of communicate then what are the core ideas? What are the the main points here? So I, I really had to kind of, I really had to do that digging myself. And I think in doing that, I deepened my own understanding. I definitely shifted my thinking on some things and it was just, it was wonderful. And I so I think I especially deepened my thinking by consulting sources from a broad array, array of perspectives. I mean, someone once said to me, they're like, I don't think, you know, looking at my acknowledgement section, they're like, I don't think this group of rabbis has ever been together on a page, right? You know, I have yeah, like, yeah. you know, in my book, I'm quoting like, you know, really kind of, you know, out there renewal rabbis and also ultra-Orthodox rabbis and just everything in between. And I yeah. think that helped me. It gave me a much broader perspective, and I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Do you have any, off the top of your head, particular examples of those experiences of having to kind of go that layer deeper and layer deeper to be? Oh, gosh. Yes. I mean, I'm thinking about, so a good example is, you know, when I was writing my chapter on Shabbat, (laughs) you know, you kind of, it's like, okay, you know, on Shabbat, you should, you shouldn't do X. And then it's like, oh, except for with Y and actually only with Z. And I'm like, okay, wait a second. I want to just kind of give clear examples of what, you know, things that you do or don't do, but it's just so hard. You know, as I go d- down yeah. deeper and deeper and deeper, I realize like, wow, it's hard to articulate this clearly. And it also made me more appreciative of the intricacy of the Shabbat laws because what they're doing is they're basically plugging up every little tiny nook and cranny through which the consumerist marketplace, you're not enough, never enough, buy more, spend more world is trying to seep through. So you actually yeah, yeah. do need these kind of nitty gritty rules to block that out, right? So I, yeah. I actually, as much as it was frustrating when I was trying to articulate them, I came to really appreciate the value of them. So I think that's an example of where going deeper actually allowed me to almost you know, go higher, like to almost sort of step back and yeah, see things yeah. at a little bit of a higher level. Yeah, I think about that a lot, how I don't think, I mean, when Shabbat was first a thing, I don't think they were thinking about like us now taking a break from posting on Twitter. But I think that right? now, as yeah, it just has a real effect on our lives still 4,000 years later. Yes. And that kind of growth through the constant of it has just, it's just mind blowing to me. It is. I mean, I, lo- I love what you said about that, like that growth through the constant of it. Right? That is the great thing about Judaism is that you, you know, we've been able to take this tradition that is thousands of years old and preserve its beating heart by actually continually reimagining it. Right? You cannot yeah. preserve Judaism by setting it in stone in the first century or the sixth century or the 12th century or the 17th century. As much as there are people who desperately want to do that, that is not a traditional move. It's a radical move, right? We have to continue. We have to just continue doing what our ancient rabbis did, which was to say, yeah. okay, we no longer have a temple. How are we going to do this? I mean, they really yeah. had to reimagine this, yet while still remaining faithful to the beating heart of the tradition. And I think that's the challenge still today. And that's something I love, particularly with the experience of being a Jewish woman. I feel like we are kind of tasked at the super always evolving intersection of being a woman and being set in kind of like our feminist identity and also being a Jew and having that be a huge piece of identity too. And that gives us, I think, in any aspect of society, whether that be our religion or our academia or a career, a very particular vantage point that allows us to reimagine it in, in really exciting ways. Have you had those experiences at that intersection? You know, I think that is a really exciting intersection because I'm seeing, yeah. I think, a lot of really powerful and important work 
is actually coming through a feminist lens of women saying, wait a second, what about life cycle rituals for menopause, right? Like what about other life cycle rituals for things that are happening in women's bodies? It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, wait a second, that's important. What about your rituals to help people walk through miscarriage, pregnancy loss, right? Like these are important rituals that women need and Judaism Mm -hmm. does actually have wisdom on this. It needs to be found. It needs to be understood in a modern way. But I'm, I'm seeing a lot of really powerful, especially around mikvah. You know, you're seeing some amazing, just amazing understandings of what the mikvah is, what it can be. Um, I think it's great. So I think a lot of some really exciting cutting edge work is happening through that feminist lens. Jewish women, I think, have always played this role of not being quiet. I think we are like kind of like to, <laughs> to lean into the stereotype. We're always loud and vocal of what we care about. So I think particularly for this audience of of everyone, but in particular focus on Jewish women, we listen to a lot of incredible women who are doing really amazing things. And I don't think that's a coincidence because we have really embraced this tradition of, of being vocal as a part of our heritage. And I think that that's something that I love about our culture. I love it too. I mean, if you look even mm-hmm. like as far back as looking at the Torah, right? Like yeah. I get it. The women aren't necessarily the main characters in some of the ways that men are, but they are really important. They are complex. Yeah. They are wielding incredible power. I mean, yeah. hello, Moses exists. Moses's entire life was made possible by a series of heroic women who did mm-hmm. really radical, subversive, incredibly brave things. Right? Yeah. That's which is why I find the Haggadah, the t- traditional Haggadah, so frustrating because none of those women are mentioned. It's very, yeah. very strangely edited version of the Passover, of the Exodus story. I do not love it. But you know, and even and the matriarchs, they're complicated and they're wielding power behind the scenes. You see it. And if you read the Torah closely and carefully, you see these stories. And so we have a long line of very powerful, vibrant, strong women in Judaism. Yeah. And that's that's the exciting piece of it, that you get to be a part of this history Um, and to really embrace that. And I think and and the stories have always been there. They just haven't always been emphasized. And women like you are, are writing books about it, are speaking about it, are are really paving the way for the next generation of women to come in in a world where these things are taught to us from a young age. And that's that's just incredibly exciting to, to imagine. There are so many amazing women doing some of the most exciting things with Judaism today. You know, I think of B'nai Lappi, Rabbi B'nai Lappi, who's running Svara, which is this amazing queer yeshiva. I think of Rabbi Danya Rutenberg, who has, you know, she is doing all sorts of teaching and, you know, just amazing work to translate Judaism and to inspire people. I mean, there are just so many women like that that I look to and that I quote in my book. So it's just, I feel very lucky. Absolutely. And, you know, how we like to end all of our podcasts is we want everyone to listen to this podcast, but the the particular focus is, is, is young women, is young women being able to have access to mentors that they might never get the chance to meet, but can get advice from and can get guidance from. And so we want it to, to, to get advice from you if you were speaking to a young woman, a younger sibling, a younger sister, um, and giving her advice about what it's like to navigate the world as a Jewish woman. What would you want her to know? Oh, I love this. You know, I think the most important piece of advice is actually one that Gretchen Rubin, another wonderful Jewish woman, she mentions in her book, um, I think it's The Happiness Project, where she talks about how you know, she always thought she should read The Economist and serious magazines and books, but she realized actually she didn't love reading them. They weren't they weren't really relevant to her passions, to her interests. So she just stopped and she started reading less prestigious books and, and magazines that 
inspired and moved her. And the lesson that she got from that was be Gretchen. You know, just be Gretchen, be yourself. And I, I think so often it's very easy to live your life for other people's consumption, so to focus on the things that look prestigious, that's, that sound important, that other people will regard highly, and to not really be in tune with how that's hitting you in your body, in your soul, right? To kind of yeah. go through life almost like half asleep, kind of accumulating honors and things on the resume without feeling deeply, without living your life fully. And I think it's just so important to really step back and say, okay, what what sparks my soul? You know, where do I feel aligned with something deeper? Like what really, what excites me? And of course there are going to be limits on that, right? We have financial limits. We have family limits. I'm not saying it's not, it's often not possible to follow all your dreams at once, right? I'm, I'm certainly yeah. not saying that, but to kind of keep in tune with that spark that is individually you and that, you know, your special thing that you have to offer to the world. Don't lose sight of that in the the rush for success and the rush to look good on social media. I mean, young women today, it's so much harder than when I was growing up. There's the constant curating of your life for other people's consumption. Mm-hmm. And I would just say, don't do that, right? Curate your life for, you know, for your own consumption, but more importantly, curate your life to serve something higher than yourself. You know, yeah. I think that's that's really a key. So I think- you know, looking inward, listening to that still small voice within and doing your best to live your life in alignment with it. That's absolutely amazing advice. And Sarah, it's been such an honor to speak with you. You are an inspiring and incredible woman. And I'm really honored to have had the opportunity to speak with you today. Oh, it was such a pleasure. You are inspiring and incredible. And it just, I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you for hosting this podcast. It's a really, it's it's a great thing. Thank you. And thank you so much for for being a part of this, for being such a vocal Jewish woman and for not letting any one piece of your life, like you you do all of it. You are an incredible Jewish woman and super influential in politics. And you do those two things at the same time and you do both of them boldly and proudly. And it's just unbelievable to see. And I'm really grateful for it. You are so kind. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I loved this episode and I hope you did too. I was reflecting on why I loved it so much, and I think it's this. I grew up knowing and really caring about my Judaism, sure, but in a sort of superficial way. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I realized Judaism was something super meaningful to me, something I was desperate to connect to more, even though I couldn't yet articulate why. For many of us young Jews today, this experience brings painfully true. We want to grow stronger roots in our culture, religion, faith, and heritage, but we don't know where to even begin. Nobody wants to be the only person in the synagogue who doesn't know the prayers. It's hard and honestly, more than a little intimidating. I heard that same thing in Sarah's story. She wanted to rediscover Judaism, so she found a way. Not the conventional way, but also not the Jewish day school way. As an adult, looking for her history on her own terms. She realized how much she longed for a connection to her roots. Like so many of us, she was afraid of not being Jewish enough. What she realized though, is that being Jewish isn't linear. And it doesn't just mean one thing. Being Jewish is a process of growth throughout our lives. And that process looks different for all of us. Finding your connection to Judaism is hard but it's also kind of awesome. You choose your path for yourself and you can change that path at any time. 
that made me realize that maybe this experience isn't as rare as I used to think it was. Maybe I'm not alone, and maybe none of us are. We are just on our own journeys. Sarah Hurwitz is so much more than a nice Jewish girl. She is a whole person, a professional, a Jew, a professional Jew. There's something I find so moving about the idea that embracing your Judaism wholly means just existing as a Jewish person. That owning this identity with pride and finding the value in it can impact more than just our own lives, but the lives of those around us. Representation takes multiple forms, and Sarah shows us the completeness of it. And this, my friends, is where we will leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I'd love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other nice Jewish girls to host on this pod. Email us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. And join us next week when we'll be speaking with Tehillah Friedman, former member of Knesset, Israel's parliament. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. I want to specifically recommend Unpacking Israeli History, where every episode, my colleague Noam does a deep dive into a different event in Israeli history. I love it because it's actually a really nuanced and honest portrait of stories about a messy and amazing place. Check it out and let me know what you think. And follow Unpacked at all of the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.